Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. It is one of the explanations why, compared to tofu, which is another source of protein popular originating from China, tempeh is not as popular because it's been buried under these, I was the negative branding or paradigm among in the nations where it came from. But now is the rise of um, piggybacking on the protein momentum, the health, natural, nutritious, wholesome food momentum. This is the Asian tempeh. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. I learned so much on today's podcast about one of my favorite ingredients, tempeh. Now, I know you probably have preconceptions about it, but trust me, when you begin to understand the history and variety of tempeh, you will soon recognize that it is comparable to that of cheese, wine, and other artisanal foods that we absolutely cherish. Joining me to dive into this world of this beautiful health-promoting ingredient is Dr. Amadeus Driando Arnon Winano, an absolute tempeh specialist and probably the world's best expert on this ingredient. Ando, as he's also known by, is a food scientist, activist, entrepreneur who's on a mission to give people access to this nutritious, sustainable and affordable source of protein through promoting and innovating on tempeh. And he is the man to do it. Considering his PhD was on the tempeh fermentation process, he's written five texts on tempeh fermentation, including the most up-to-date manuscript on tempeh called a semi-centennial review paper on tempeh, also known as the Tempeh Bible. You can find that on the doctorskitchen.com website. And he also co-founded Better Nature in the UK, which is a UK plant-based food startup whose tempeh you'll find in all large supermarkets. And I vouch for it, it tastes delicious. Remember, you can watch today's episode on YouTube. Just click the link if you're listening to this and you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free to get access to all of our recipes that feature tempeh in a few of them because, like I said, it's one of my favorite ingredients. You can also sign up to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter that you can subscribe to on the doctorskitchen.com website. And remember, one way to support the podcast is to review and share this episode. If you found something useful today or you found something that was novel or interesting, why not share it with a friend or a loved one? I'm sure they will appreciate it. For now, onto my podcast with Dr. Ando, all about my beloved ingredient, tempeh. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ando, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, let's talk about why tempeh is the most incredible food that everyone should be putting in their shopping baskets. Yeah, so tempeh is one of Indonesia's staple sources of protein. And the most common form of tempeh is soybean tempeh. So it's literally whole soybeans fermented together. And it would have increased, I would say, improved taste and health benefits and bioavailability of uh, the nutrients. And Indonesians love it. So I'm, I'm a bit biased. Um, but I have this genuine love for tempeh because it's literally my first food. When I was a baby, like that's tempeh porridge for my first food, my childhood snack, and now still my favorite source of protein. And it happened that throughout my tempeh journey, um, I took my PhD study and I researched on tempeh. That's when I realized that this is an exceptional, nutritious, sustainable, and affordable source of protein. So in a nutshell, that's what I would say of why it's in my opinion one of the best foods out there and so you've done a whole phd on tempeh which is pretty amazing to start off with w what actually is tempeh um because i i think i've heard you say that tempeh isn't necessarily the food that i'm thinking of but more so a process yes so um i see tempeh in two levels level one is as a food in which the most common one is soy tempeh, soybeans fermented using tempeh fungi, the good fungi, and made into this cake-like source of protein that you can slice it, cook it just like meat. And the second level is tempeh as a process. So because it's a fermentation process, you can change the ingredients. You can play around with tw more than 22 different types of grains, legumes, and beans, and the end results, you would have something completely different than the, the common tempeh. So you can literally play around with it, change the shape, change the colors, change the taste and the health benefits. So I would say that those are the two levels of tempeh in my definition. Yeah. So, I mean, just hearing that, it's kind of expanded my understanding of tempeh as an ingredient uh, because I always thought of tempeh as soybeans and you can add those fermented soybeans, um, it, you, you can add things like hemp seeds to them or nuts, or like you can change the variety of tempeh that way, maybe marinate them as well. But actually the fact that you can use a different source ingredient to create different types of tempeh was news to me. And I, I guess like in one of your papers that I read uh, as a result of your PhD, you talk about the type 
of uh, fermentation that you do and the, and the steps of fermentation. I, I wonder if you could walk us through what that tempeh fermentation process looks like. Yes. So interestingly, I did this tempeh meditation one day at the symposium because people wanted to know how the process is going. And I, I took them into a journey of looking at it from the baby mushrooms, quote unquote, perspective. Right. So imagine that the tempeh making process is a process in which we need to make the baby mushrooms happy. The name of the baby mushroom is, the long name is Rhizopus. Right, we can we can call it Rizzi. Let's call it Rizzi, right? So Rizzi, as a baby mushroom, needs some basic needs, right? So Rizzi needs food, and Rizzi likes the food to be tender enough to be cooked, to be clean, and not too hot. And that's literally what how we begin in making tempeh. So whatever your bean is, oh, we soak it overnight to make it tender, and then we. Remove the skin if the skin is too hard, just like soybean, so that Rizzi can bite into it easily. And then we boil it, uh, we simmer it, and we let it dry enough. And that is to allow Rizzi to be able to eat it without burning like Rizzi's mouth. And um, now we have the cooked food for Rizzi. Now some for Rizzi to eat. Right? So Rizzi eats, unlike us, like Rizzi cannot use hands Rizzi doesn't have hands Rizzi has to use i would say Rizzi saliva is called enzyme so enzymes are these biological tiny tiny molecules that do the jobs of breaking foods or nutrients for us so Rizzi excretes these different enzymes uh, that can break down proteins called protease they can break down uh, lipids or fats called lipase and and etc so these allow Rizzi to digest the food easily. And ultimately, Rizzi does the chewing, quote unquote, for us. And that would make these nutrients uh, be more digestible for us. So Rizzi is quite happy with the food. You know, after lunch, Rizzi is feeling sleepy and Rizzi has to take a nap. So uh, to take a nap, Rizzi would like um, Rizzi's bedroom to be to be a bit breezy, so it has to have some um, air circulations. And that's why typically we put um, our cooked beans mixed with our tempest culture or Rizzi into containers. So um, we use plastic bags. We need to poke holes for every about one centimeter. If we use in Indonesia, we use traditionally banana leaves, guava leaves. Um, with leaves, as you fold it, you've got enough this air circulation coming from the holes. And now people nowadays use trays, so uh, and put it in the oven, but just turn on the lights for for the right warmness, and it has some air circulation. And to to have a good nap, Rizzi uh, requires certain temperature level, and Rizzi uh, having Indonesian root in <laughs> in Rizzi's blood, Rizzi likes Indonesian temperature, so that would be about twenty from twenty eight degrees Celsius to thirty two degrees Celsius would be ideal and Rizzi takes long naps so Rizzi would spend about I would say 30 hours to 72 hours of nap until Rizzi is completely happy and Rizzi grows into this adult happy mushroom in the form quote-unquote it's actually mold but good mold uh, in the form of mycelium 
that gathers together the beans into this solid cake that we can slice, that we can cook just like meat. But whenever we real- realize it or not, these fairy beans that are not fermented have much better qualities in terms of protein and taste compared to before these were fermented by Rizi. Because again, Rizi chewed the nutrients for us and Rizi improves um, the flavor. So if Rizi is happy, then we'd be happy too. We got delicious fruits in the end. So I would say that's what semper fermentation is. That's brilliant. I love that analogy. And I'm always going to think of Rizi now, uh, this baby mushroom, uh, and, and nurturing it through the fermentation process. So just to recap that, so you, you say we're starting with your um, your, your soybean. So you, you soak it uh, overnight, remove the skins to remove uh, the, um, uh, the the outer casing that would prevent the the uh, fungus from from accessing the nutrition in the middle of the bean, and then cook the bean, um, and then you wrap it in a porous material i guess leaves but let's say i don't have banana leaf or another traditional leaf to to wrap it in would a a muslin cloth or another sort of breathable material like that suffice or does it have to be something more specific Uh, in general yes but um, i would avoid anything that can absorb and retain water just because a reezy doesn't Mm. like um, too much water around Rizzi. So yeah, anything that ah. that's like leaves, even like plastic sheets, uh, baking paper, what it would do. And and for leaves, as long as it's safe, as long as it's not producing toxin like poison ivy, it, it should be all right. Okay, great. And so you have this uh, fungus that secretes the enzymes, proteases, lipases, et cetera, to break down the nutrients that you find within the bean. Um, and I guess there are some metabolites that are produced as a result of that. Do, do we have a sense of what additional ones might be other than a simpler protein and a simpler fat structure? Uh, yes. So besides the amino acids, um, simple fatty acids, um, what's interesting is that some nutrients – were originally trapped in the in the native forms. I would say in beans, what's most interesting to me is like there are bioactive compounds in various forms of plant-based foods, right? In tomatoes, we got lycopenes. In soybeans, we got isoflavones or genistains. And these isoflavones, I would say these bioactive compounds from all these different plants, um, they have been researched and they've been proven to have correlation with decreased risk of various chronic diseases. And these typically address the inflammation mechanism that is one of the main mechanisms that can um, lead to chronic disease conditions like Alzheimer, even coronary heart disease, and even cancer. And um, it is actually my, my PhD research, actually. So throughout the fermentation, apart from releasing the simpler forms of protein, i.e. amino acids and, and fats, i.e. fatty acids, the temper fermentation also releases more bioactive compounds that were previously trapped either um, on the fiber complex or being um, tied to sugars like glucose. And these allow the bioactive compounds to be more readily digestible for us. So that means that after some temper fermentation, 
all these health-promoting plant-based foods can become even more health-promoting because of the bioactive compounds that are released more. So yeah, I would say that's that's my highlight and what's been released by tomato fermentation. That is so great. That's amazing. Okay, so you've got these metabolites, uh, a simpler, more absorbable, um, uh, a different macronutrients, so your proteins and, and fatty acids and stuff. And then you talk about the humid uh, Indonesian style conditions, um, uh, 28 degrees to 38 uh, degrees centigrade and 30 to 72 hours. So when do you know, let's say I'm, I'm doing my, my homemade uh, uh, tempeh uh, process, when do I know that the tempeh has had uh, enough time, i.e. Reese has had enough time to have his long nap? Yeah, so first you can touch it. And if you feel heat coming from it, I mean, it's almost ready or it's ready. And because it will produce its own heat. And the second thing is that you can um, smell it. I, I love the, fr- the smell of fresh tempeh. And um, the third one is actually fine to open the container, either it's leaf or plastic bag or it's closed tray. And um, you check it, if it's um, solid, compact, white mass, that I would say that's done. And if you see some black spot, that's all right. That's a natural life cycle of Rizzi. Um, it would sporulate when it's happy, right? Um, but some people would prefer the completely white um, tempeh mass, I would say, and that's all right. Um, and if it's not done yet, if you see like the mycelium is quite, um, it has a lot of gaps, uh, you can always put the container back and leave it for, for longer. That's epic. So with um, that smell that you uh, talked about and uh, and this reaction, I guess it's like some sort of exothermic reaction or heat, heat generating reaction. Is it similar to kind of like um, sourdough bread or like a sourdough starter? We have like this mustiness that smells ca- kind of pleasant um, and, and like, you know, something's going on down there. Yes, I would say there are similarities. Um, I can't quite describe it. It's a bit fruity. It's also a bit beany, but in a good way. Beany, half meaty, right? But if, if, if from sourdough, we can detect uh, fruitiness, of course, from the uh, some lactic acid bacteria and from Maya reaction of the protein reacting with the, with the heat, right? Um, there, is no, the, there is none of the cooked notes, right? But I would say that the, the number one impression is fresh, so I don't know how to describe it further, but it's uh, it's fresh, just like. Sorry, I don't ha- I don't actually have any comparison That's all right. <laughs> for this. Yeah, it's so, quite um, a novel ingredient. It's, yeah, it's a it's a worthy experience. Yeah. And with different types of um, fungi that you would use in the fermentation process, I'm imagining there are different types that you could potentially use to elicit different, maybe. Uh, nutritional profiles as well as flavors is is that something that that you can do with uh, with tempeh yes so the family tree of tempeh fermentation is a big big tree right so we got tempeh we've got tempeh's cousins and we've got tempeh's great cousins so for the tempeh i would say the most accessible with different starter culture types would be rizzi rhizopus oligosporus and rhizopus orizi so these kind of other cultures you can browse online on Amazon, on eBay, on, um, on Google. You can find tempeh starter culture. And typically these two 
siblings of Te- of Rizi would come up. But in Indonesia, just like how there are many types of cheese originating from France, temper fermentation is, is like that as well. So we got at least 40 types of Rizis in Indonesia, and they have different characteristics and different effects. Right, So th- they would taste uh, quite different, and they would result in different looking tempeh. Interestingly, as uh, the most common temper would look white, smooth white, but in some cases you can see some some yellow spots, a beautiful yellow spot. And in very rare case in which my mom also ferments tempeh, like three weeks ago we saw this tiny pink patches coming up, like once uh, we we were done fermenting tempeh. So yeah, I would say we're just um, at the tip of the iceberg of temper fermentation. Um, I would say try to play around with these two types of Reese's for now. It's accessible around the world, but more of the fermentation death coming up with, with more types of Reese's. I love that. And so is it similar in that when you have like a sourdough starter, for example, you're just, it's just constantly growing and you've got to cut it, you've got to give it away to people. Is it like that with the different types of fungi that you use at the start of uh, tempeh fermentation? Yeah, so... I tried making sourdough from scratch by myself, right? Literally, not ha- not buying any starter culture, but just leaving the the flour and water like uh, on my fridge, and whatever comes in, I'll make sourdough from it. But I would say I I, I would not recommend doing the same for temper fermentation, just because one of Reese's cousins uh, is actually quite quite dangerous. So. Um, the main reese is called Rhizopus oligosporus. It's a nickname from Rhizopus microsporus, the species, Far oligosporus. So reese's cousin, which is Rhizopus microsporus, Far microsporus, we call it Rhizopus microsporus, um, can produce toxin. So um, we need to be very careful about it. And it can look the same like reese. And so that's why, although the origin of tempeh now uh, it's very likely that, oh, this random person um, wrapping others boiled soybean lunch in guava leaves. Then when they opened it, oh, what is this? A solid white. And the person still ate it anyway. Uh, although that sounds very romantic to do that as well. These days, I would not recommend it because of this Reese's um, risky cousin. Right, so um, I would still recommend purchasing these food safety tests that the cultures online um, mm-hmm. to begin uh, the tempeh making journey. Do, do you believe that story about how tempeh uh, came to fruition 300 years ago of, of the random person who just wrapped it in a banana leaf and came back a couple of days later to, to find tempeh? Yeah, I, I don't have any other alternative for that yet because like, <laughs> the, I think the, <laughs> the earliest documentation was, was not even the fermentation process. It was in the 1600s and it took place in, interestingly, where, in where my grandpa was born in, in this tiny village in central Java, out of Indonesia's 17,000 islands. Um, it was about this dish, which is literally tempeh made into a curry and was drizzled on these boiled veggies eaten with white rice and some rice crackers. So 100% vegan, like this, the origins of, 
and mainly Indonesian speakers, served to a prince who would later wrote this story into his journal, and this journal turned out to be an ancient inscription that we can read now. So it originated as um, the earliest documentation was tempeh dish served to a prince. So yeah, um, I'm still wondering what actually happened for the very first tempeh, but, but I would not be surprised if there were actually many casualties and and doing the quote-unquote rnd the ancient rnd right so that now we have these tailored optimized temper that we can enjoy now yeah you mentioned uh, a lot of the tempeh traditionally that you have in indonesia is white and and certainly when i do google images searches uh online i can see it's usually white but the stuff that we have, particularly in the UK and I think in the US as well, tends to have almost like a beigeous color with some discoloration on the outside that can be black and sometimes with white spots as well, at least from my limited experience of enjoying tempeh. Um, is there a reason why we tend to get the beige stuff rather than the, the white stuff? Uh, yes. So uh, in Indonesia, fresh tempeh um, could only last for three days because the fermentation happens of at a um, higher pace and um, it gets over fermented very quickly when it's over fermented typically we only use it as seasoning like uh, for some people it's too funky right and in indonesia because i would say it's been around for about 400 years then food regulation wise it's allowed to have these fresh tempeh everywhere that it's um, just wrapped in plastic bags, sold in supermarkets. But in Europe, in North America, and in most countries outside of Indonesia that I know of, including Japan, that it is not allowed uh, for food safety reason. So um, we need to do this very mild heating process. So about 75 degrees Celsius for about 15 minutes. And or the technical term is pasteurization. But I don't want to scare people off. The term, because it's pasteurization, that sounds scary. It's actually just heating it 75 degrees Celsius for 15 minutes using steam as it has been packed. So um, because of this heat exposure that um, the shelf life extends because the fermentation is frozen and um, the beige color that you mentioned that comes from the mycelium uh, more pressed into um, towards the beans. So the beans, soybeans have natural bright yellow color and because typically these words are vacuum packed uh for for longer shelf life as well that gives the yellow color that that you see gotcha and so is it fair to say that the fresh tempeh that you can buy because you're, you're dialing in from indonesia right now so the fresh tempeh that you can buy from your local supermarket uh has probiotic qualities whereas the temper that we have access to that has that mild processing uh, of heat inactivates the probiotic qualities and gives us some other benefits, high in fiber, high in protein, but not the probiotic qualities. So in short, yes. But interestingly, um, I've read quite a lot of research on para-probiotics. And it's interesting because, um, yes, the probiotics, if we pasteurize the temper, the probiotics would be dead, right? But then from the remnants, it they still stimulate positive immune response. Like uh, we can see a spike in IgG in the bloodstream that says that 
oh yeah, the, the immune system is being exercised. So these paraprobiotics, I don't find it in quite a lot of food. Um, but in, temp- in tempeh, that's very interesting because um, we still have the prebiotics, of course, like from the fiber, it would feed the probiotics in our gut. And from the paraprobiotics, the remnants of the probiotics, it will still enrich the gut microbiome composition and promotes positive immune response. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, I love that kind of concept of these um, uh, paraprobiotics in that I, I think even having the dead uh, microbial cell walls in the product that you consume elicits some beneficial effect. Um, so yeah, definitely one to watch there. And uh, I, so w- let's turn our attention to the different types of tempeh. So we've alluded to the fact that you can use many different uh, starter fungi, although there are some typical ones that w- you would recommend um, from the the two different um, uh, families or the two core families. But there are some other wonderful derivations of tempeh that don't use soybean. They use other uh, beans. What what other ones can can you you speak to that you've tried perhaps? Yeah. So okay, let's start with the level of variation in terms of the ingredients. So my grandpa, when he was a kid, he could not afford whole bean tempeh that we can enjoy now. He could only afford tempehs made of tofu byproducts. So when we make tofu. We basically steep down some solids from soy milk, right, to make it into tofu, just like how we make paneer, just like how we make cheese. The so tofu is like the cheese of soy milk. But then there are some, some residues and solids that are not steeped down into tofu. And these solids are fermented into tempeh, and it's called tempeh gumbus. Uh, so this gives this homogeneous texture. It's, it's almost like fish. So my grandpa used to eat this when he was a kid because he simply couldn't afford it. And this says a lot about the depth of how tempered fermentation can produce variety of end products. So, and now people have been making tempeh using oat milk solids, like soy milk industry side stream as well, which is one of our research projects. So it, it gives this lens of upcycling that which I think is fascinating about tempered fermentation, we can upcycle um, foods that we waste, which is like, global food waste number is ridiculous, right? About thirty percent, I think. And um, the second one is the like you mentioned, the starter culture. We have this another cousin of tempeh in Indonesia called onchom. So interestingly, onchom looks the color of onchom is like. It's pink. It's almost like salmon, people say. So um, it has different flavor profile. It's funkier. So it's almost like a quite niche flavor for people. And But it says a lot that even the tempeh fungus rizi can grow together with onchom fungus neurospora. Or what should we call it? Well, yeah, just nero. Let's call it nero. Right. So... It's not just about picking the starter culture, it's about combining which organisms that we want to grow together with. So in this regard, uh, I've been experimenting with creating high vitamin B12 tempeh, so naturally, no fortification, high vitamin D tempeh. And because it goes back to how rich 
Indonesian tempeh saw in vitamin B12. And interestingly, in the early days, we cannot detect vitamin B12 in tempeh outside of Indonesia because the vitamin B12 comes from a bacteria, good bacteria that come unintentionally from the soil, from the river. Right. So uh, now, Better Nature, uh, Better Nature, we're trying to make this in hygienic condition, um, adhering to food standards and regulation. And the last one I would say is um, the container. So, type of fermentation, it will follow the shape and the volume and the space given with the container. So, if we ferment tempeh in star-shaped containers, the end products will be star-shaped. If we ferment tempeh in the sculpture shape, you can create a sculpture made using tempeh fermentation. So, now it expands again. It could be beyond food. It could be odd as well. But, yeah, we can go endless with these. And, yeah, by adjusting the temperature and the humidity... We can prolong the fermentation, but have the mycelium dig deeper into the beans, or you can increase the temperature and shorten the fermentation so that it has milder taste and be less funky. So, yeah, I would say. That's it. That's incredible. Because, you know, as you're talking there about increasing vitamin D or increasing B12 and tinkering with the nutritional profile, the way we traditionally do it uh, today in the UK is fortification. So we fortify, for example, white flour because we've essentially stripped all the the B vitamins out of it and we have to add uh, essentially a multivitamin-like product to the flour to ensure that it meets nutritional values. But if there is a way to naturally process this incredible uh, ingredient, um, it just stands to reason that's that's probably what we should be doing rather than trying to tinker with just like uh, adding uh, individual nutrients to the end product. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think one key word about tempeh is wholesomeness. Right. So th- there was the age where people tried to make supplements, right? Oh, we have th- vitamin C is really good for your body. Uh, eat, consume this vitamin C every day. Wait a second. Vitamin C can only wo- work together with vitamin E. Have this vitamin C and E supplements. Oh wait, sorry. We need also fiber to protect them, so that to make them like survive the intestines. So that it's catching up, right? But then from whole foods, science sometimes still catching up that the whole foods contained a lot more beneficial nutrients that we might not know all of them yet. And I think tempeh is one of them. Right, so with bioactive compounds protected by the um, with the fiber and protein and fat, I would say, and now vitamin B12 and vitamin D. What's beautiful about tempeh is that we can, I would say, we can tailor the fermentation process according to what we want, but still retain the value of creating something naturally nutritious and wholesome. You did this um, this massive review of, of tempeh as part of your PhD. Um, what did you find in terms of uh, protein? Because I, I think, I mean, you've got a story about why you got into tempeh uh, to do with the protein, right? Maybe you could tell us a bit about that and then we can get into actually what you found in terms of the nutritional comparisons with other uh, animal-based sources of protein and uh, tempeh-based protein. Yes. When I was doing my undergrad, I was obsessed with bodybuilding. So I wanted to have six pack. I wanted to have 
the highest possible muscle mass and the lowest possible fat mass. I was really upset. So I tried different sources of protein. Right? So I uh, tried consuming like, meats every day, didn't feel great at all, like eggs. I got allergy from eating too much egg and milk as well. I always got allergy, um, I was intolerant like, from it. And uh, I tried these wheat protein. It was expensive. And I got acne from it. So I was struggling and using my biotechnology background back then, I tried to look up what source of protein that I can eat sustainably. Sustainably means that I would not feel bloated. I would not be financially broken. And um, I would eat that happily every day. So I found these these papers quite scattered that, oh, 10% nutritional profile is very potential. And wait a minute, tempeh is typically on my dining table almost every day and in many people's dining tables in Indonesia. So I thought, ooh, this could be sustainable. And when I looked into it, and now that I've summarized it in the review paper, it's mind-blowing. I, I could not believe it at first, but after summarizing, I was say, screening 250,000 articles and narrowing it down to like about 300 articles and 60 of them were about health benefits now i believe it so for example compared to beef like tempeh contains similar amounts of protein and energy and iron significantly higher levels of fiber and calcium i was shocked about calcium significantly lower levels of saturated fat and sodium salt and i thought Tempeh is not inferior to beef, if like what. But but sometimes there's this interesting history about tempeh that tempeh has been used as an analogy among Indonesians to convey you know, colonialism. Because one of the traditional ways to make tempeh was using feet and to peel the skin, just like wine, just like how we make wine traditionally, right? So the first president of Indonesia uses this analogy as for analogy for texture as well. Do not have tempeh mentality. Do not be a tempeh nation. So it is one of the explanations why compared to tofu, which, which is another source of protein popular originating from China, tempeh is not as popular because it's been buried under these I was the negative branding or paradigm among Indonesians where it came from. But now is the rise um, piggybacking on the protein momentum, the health, natural, nutritious, wholesome food momentum. This is the age of tempeh. Yeah, I didn't know about the historical uh, background of how tempeh was d- uh, discouraged uh, as a sort of, it sounds like it was. Um, uh, 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 an analogy for primitive uh, uh, cultures and that we had to move beyond sort of like our ancient roots. But actually, you know, we're seeing a, a resurgence of traditional ways of eating that is typically more plant-based, typically more legume and grain-based. Um, so that that's fascinating. I did I did not know about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why it's, it's a new age for tempeh. It's a down of the age of tempeh. Just because like, I can't think of anybody who does not need an affordable, nutritious, and sustainable source of protein. Like everyone. And what's interesting is that it's relevant for malnutrition as well. So malnutrition um, can go two ways, right? Undernutrition and overnutrition. Undernutrition, one of my emotional reasons to begin my tempeh journey is, is encountering children with protein energy malnutrition. And I thought, 
that amongst this crisis of feeding the kids with instant foods, instant noodles, all these shortcuts for flavors, we need more, more foods like tempeh to naturally nourish like these children um, affordably, right? And for overnutrition as well, like with, the, with the rise of chronic diseases linked to like unhealthy eating habits, tempeh can be a solution it's naturally. Um, low in carbohydrate and uh, is rich in healthy fats and low in saturated fat. Um, I, I see hope, so I would say tempeh is, is a food of hope in this context. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, you, you're convincing me for sure. We talked about protein a couple of times here. One of the um, uh, pushbacks that a lot of people have for comparing protein sources across each other is a protein is not necessarily a protein, right? So a, a protein may have a completely uh, varied uh, essential amino acid profile. Um, with beef, you tend to have a lot more of the um, uh, methionine and uh, leucine and these sort of uh, master uh, amino acid uh, blocks that lead to protein muscle synthesis and muscle protein synthesis and, and, and all the rest of it. Does, does tempeh compare when we look a little bit deeper at the actual amino acid profile to some of the other animal-based proteins that we find? Right. So since we've talked about that tempeh can be made from different kinds of beans, now um, it would be depending on what beans we use, right? But in terms of soybean, I think soy is an exception. Like people, yeah, like, like the pushbacks I got in promoting tempeh is that, oh, what is a oh, plant-based source of protein? Typically plant-based sources of protein do not have complete amino acid profiles, right? And soybean tempeh, which is the most researched one, has complete amino acid profiles because soybean is quite an exceptional crop. So I would I would give credits to all those people who I would say optimize soybean as a crop so that now it has complete sources of amino acids. What's interesting is that throughout the fermentation process, it altered the levels of amino acids depending on what kind of fermentation we do, which organisms we use, which temperature that we apply. But we see, for example, leucine-wise, um, it can increase like tremendously after temp fermentation and potentially because of the, I got two hypotheses. One, of the, one is the, the release of the inaccessible ones previously or even the synthesis by Rizzi itself. Right. And um, yeah, I would say um, in general, what I can say is that tamper fermentation can alter amino acid profiles so that we can create complementary sources of amino acids in our diets, right? Because that's the best, right? Just like puzzle pieces, we need to find like pieces that can click with, it, with each other. And I think tamper fermentation allows us to do this. So, oh, we need these levels of amino acids for, for these diets. Then we can do that technically with tempeh fermentation. That's epic. So your your typical tempeh that you might find in a UK supermarket, is that as a result of the fact that we're using soybeans, would that naturally contain all nine essential amino acids in sufficient amounts? Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting is that um, the glutamic acid, so the longer the fermentation happens, the more glutamic acid we would get. And that would come naturally with umami flavor. 
So that's why like, the longer we remain our tempeh, the more umami rich we would get. And even longer, the over-fermented tempehs are used traditionally in Indonesia as these natural seasoning. So obviously this natural MSG replacer, because MSG can take monosodium glutamate, glutamate, glutamic acid, right? So these over-fermented tempeh can be used to replace MSG because it's this umami rich, but yeah. Just speaking about amino acids. That, that's good to know because uh, uh, I know about the negative effects of MSG, uh, but I love it. So, <laughs> so that's really useful. With uh, with regards to um, calcium, that's an interesting one because I, I, I remember doing a bit of research around calcium and, and finding out that uh, some quite unusual products are quite high in calcium, like sesame seeds from which you get tahini, um and uh tofu was one of them and I, i'm guessing tempeh would be as well are they uh again absorbable uh uh micronutrients or type types of calcium that are absorbable um uh, in the human digestive tract yes i would say and for some minerals tempeh fermentation can change the charge for example for iron like F, fe2 plus or fe3 plus and the same with calcium, the temper fermentation helps the digestibility of these nutrients, not only by releasing the micronutrients, micronutrients into micronutrients, but also to modify the charges of these minerals, which I found mind blowing. So yeah, the short answer is yes. Yeah, that's brilliant. Cause I was going to ask you about iron as well. Cause there's always this argument around, okay, yes, beans have got iron and, green uh, vegetables have got iron uh, but is it in the form that is absorbable and will have a sufficient effect on blood iron levels in the human body and, and i'm guessing that that is the case yes epic um and uh with um with regards to uh the other nutrients that we were talking about earlier um so those novel bioactive compounds uh under the umbrella term of phytonutrients so non-essential micronutrients but still nutrients that we know have health benefits in the body we mentioned a couple of them um what ones stand out for for you and ones that you came across in your in your research yes so yeah i really like your explanation right so these bioactive combine compounds um these are bonuses right so our body doesn't ask for it but if you give it then our body would be happy and the happiness this is pressed through decreased risk of chronic diseases. So I did research on isoflavones, which are the controversial phytoestrogens because people have been afraid from the sound of it. Oh my God, like, yo, if, if, you're, if you're male, then don't consume soy products, right? But then what's interesting is that reading like tons of papers about the correlation between like the soy consumption with the decreased risk of cancer. Um, the one that's been strong, the strongest correlated one is phytoestrogens. So I think the strongest correlation is between phytoestrogen intake with lung cancer and prostate cancer. I would say th those two are the main conditions linked positively with phytoestrogen consumption. But then these phytoestrogens have different forms and my objects of research were genistein, diazine, and glycetine. So these are the types of 
phytoestrogens, types of bioactive compounds of soy. So what I observe is that after time fermentation, we see these three bodies changing in, in forms, right? They were previously bound to sugar molecules and um, they can be released after the fermentation process. And because they're released and they become more bioavailable, they theoretically are assumed to be able to give more health-promoting effects because of that. And apart from that, the type of fermentation also promote new types of phenolic acids. So phenolic acids are also one of the bioactive compounds that we don't know the exact details. We don't know if Rizi actually synthesizes it. We don't know if actually Rizi um, releases it from different parts of nooks and crannies of soybeans. We don't know, but we see this um, positive effect. And I, I also tested it on different cancer cells. And I, I saw it with my own eyes that these compound, this component in our food can inhibit the growth of cancer cells, can increase the antioxidative activities um, of cells. So, yeah. And, and the, some of these, uh, I, yeah, I appreciate uh, you talking about the phytoestrogen arguments there because I think it still rages on just from the word itself. Um, and the potential for estrogenic effects, but there's, you know, different types of estrogen receptors that we have in the body, alpha and beta, and um, these work on different um, uh, receptors that actually have a net beneficial effect. Um, so, you, you know, some of the other things that people always talk about are anti-nutrients, this whole idea of anti-nutrients, and you find them in various uh, pulses, whether it be lectins, saponins, um, in various grains, um, what are some of the anti-nutrients that you might find in, uh, in, in, in tempeh? And we're just assuming that it's, we're just talking about soybean based tempeh here. Um, and what are the potential benefits of, of having those anti-nutrients in the right doses? Cause my understanding is that these have hormetic effects. Yes. Yeah, so the main anti-nutrient in soy tempeh is phytate and phytate, um, what is typically not wanted from fighters that it could compromise our ability to absorb iron, which is an important mineral. And through temper fermentation, we can actually decrease the phytate level. So uh, me personally, sometimes when I eat like just boiled soybeans, digestive-wise, I, I do not feel too great, right? So I feel bloated. But with temper, never ever. So these to me like, oh, could be, could this be like, in the same context that it increases the bioavailability of overall nutrients by also decreasing the anti-nutrient level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's, it's a really good point because I think a lot of people who are scared of eating beans and legumes, I completely understand because uh, many people have mild to moderate symptoms of bloating, gas, especially if they're coming from a low-fiber diet. Tempeh appears to be a nice go-between um, if you can flavor it properly and put it in the right um, uh, recipes, of which there are many in the doctor's kitchen and, and many other sources that you'll find on the internet as well. Um, a common question we get is how much tempeh do you need to consume, let's say on a weekly basis, to have some of those long-term benefits that have been ascribed to it? So 
uh, potentially the cancer preventative properties, cardiovascular protective properties, etc. Right. So most of the population studies and clinical studies are conducted in Indonesia uh, with the context of Indonesian populations. Right. So uh, I would retrieve the dose from how much Indonesians eat tempeh. Right. So tempeh contributes to 70% of Indonesians' daily protein intake. So that's beyond oh, tofu wow. <laughs> and that's beyond eggs, that's beyond any meat in Indonesia. So uh, typically Indonesians would eat, I would say about a fist, a fist of tempeh every day. So it's either for lunch or for dinner or for both, but very rarely for breakfast. Right. So a fist is typically Indonesians a rule of thumb. Okay. A fist. So that's how much you need to, to eat to have some of the benefits that we've, we've talked about earlier. Yeah. So they would range from, I think, 80 to 100 grams per portion. Okay, 80 to 100 grams per portion. Meal. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's like a cup size or uh, about a portion in UK standards of beans, which is uh, 80 grams. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but actually it's uh, it's pretty achievable. And um, w- what's your favorite way to eat it? Me, I like it stir-fried. So in Indonesia, there's this recipe that we marinate the tempeh first in um, in water and with crushed garlic and crushed coriander, a bit of salt. Then it would because because of the mycelium, tempeh has this sponginess that it can soak up flavors really well. So we soak the the water. Then after that, we we fry it. Indonesians love to to deep fry, but because we marinate it first. Um, the water content in the in the tempeh gives some cushion, at least, like uh, for this process. Uh, but uh-huh. but the whole point is to brown tempeh. So you can brown it in any other way. You can air fry it, and the point is to have this mm. Maya reaction because brown tempeh tastes much better than unbrown tempeh. Then after that, we cook it um, with just uh, a bit of oil. Um, then we cook the shallots, garlic. Um, chili peppers then put the tempeh in drizzle it with indonesian we call it ketchup manis it's sweet soy sauce so fermented again the fermented soy oh, I love fermented ketchup soy. Manis. so good <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. so manis. good and um, we shave a bit of this coconut palm sugar right because these heated palm sugar would create this glaze or caramelized coating so it would look like this um, shiny, dark, glazed cubes of tempeh in the end. Then we put some chopped, uh, I would say, leeks or green onions on top of it, eat it with hot white rice, and usually with uh, some condiments, just crushed chili, red chili peppers with one garlic and a bit of uh, salt for dipping, and with some rice crackers. I would say that's my, my main tempeh dish. And we call it tempeh orek. Oh, we got the recipe as well. <laughs> O-R-E-K. I'm looking that up right now and I'm going to make that recipe and maybe even a version of it on the Doctor's Kitchen app as well. So <laughs> that is epic. That sounds so good. Oh, yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Ando, this has been uh, wonderful chatting to you. I, I could talk to you all day about all the different types of tempeh. I'm sure we're probably going to have to do a little cook-up session uh, when you're next in the UK, for sure. But uh, thank you so much for 
your um, your wisdom and sharing uh, your incredible knowledge around this incredible ingredient. And I, I hope more people put it in their baskets. It's a, a wonderful health ingredient. Yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the discussion. And yeah, I look forward to like cooking out or tempeh order one day. London. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the doctorskitchen.com website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.